But anyway, one of the things, you know, we talked about on is, you know, this is probably gonna be the hardest thing that any of you will do in your career. Do you wanna be part of that? You know, here's the mountain that we're gonna go climb. I don't know exactly how we're gonna climb it, but that's the mountain. Here's the vision, here's the values we're gonna do it under. And if we're all gonna go to battle together to get up that mountain, you've gotta be either in or out. And if you're out, it's fine, because it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be really hard. What I can tell you the same time is you're gonna get opportunities that you will never get at a traditional business because we're gonna make changes and we're gonna shift and we're gonna run fast. And uh, you know, when I went back and I was like, hey, at the end of two weeks, I wanna you know, know every single person if you're, you're in or you're out. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Hobie Darling. Hobie is an accomplished C-suite executive and passionate athlete and adventurer. On the business side, he's been a senior leader for brands such as Nike, Converse, Skullcandy, Astro Gaming, and Volcom, as well as being a board director or advisor for organizations in endurance sports, physical regeneration and recovery, and human performance private equity. On the athletic side, Hobie is a certified CrossFit coach, former personal trainer, and multiple-time Ironman finisher. Today, his focus is on helping unlock human potential and extending human capabilities as a senior executive at Logitech, a global consumer electronics company, and as a founding partner at the Liminal Collective, a broader collective of world-class human performance experts on a mission to push forward the limitless potential of humans. In this interview, we get into Hobie's small-town upbringing, his winding journey from lawyer to CEO of Skullcandy, human performance and well-being, and his current roles at Logitech and the Liminal Collective. And so, without further ado, my interview with Hobie Darling. Hobie, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, Chase. Good to be here. So how did the nickname Hobie come about? Oh, man, going, uh, going deep fast. It, <laughs> uh, you know, my, my mom's side uh, said that it was really important to them when I was born to have a biblical name. And uh, on my dad's side, I think he was very much more, you know, a little bit more of a free spirit. And, you know, this young child of mine should be able to, to form their own thoughts and religions. And he said, there's just absolutely no way that I'm going to, you know, give a, a biblical name to a kid. They should choose their own religion and their own thoughts. And, uh, and so my actual real name is Seth, which my mom and her mother, who was a, a minister, uh, sort of slipped by my dad of my dad not being versed enough, well versed enough in the Bible to know that Seth was a biblical name. And when he found out, he said, you can call him whatever you want, but I'm calling him Hobie, which was uh, a combination of sort of a family name of, of one great grandparent who was Homer and one was Billy. So I thought on the good side, I could be Homer Billy and, uh, and I got Hobie. So I sort of lucked out on that at least. 
Oh, okay, interesting. Um, yeah, I thought it was maybe because I know you worked at at Volcom for a while. I figured you might be a surfer, so maybe you're named after the uh, the famous the famous surfer pioneer. I, I wish I were that young that I could be named after uh, Hobie Alter, but I, I don't think I'm uh, I don't think I'm young enough that I could have been named <laughs> after him. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Um, got it. So so where did you grow up? So I grew up in a super small town in central Washington state, a little place called Kashmir that's almost dead center of the state. I think, gosh, when I was growing up there, probably 2000 people. And, you know, we used to joke is kind of this orchardine center of the center of the world in this small town, you know, with 2000 people with probably 2 million apple trees. And, uh, you know, so grew up in this super humble area that was just absolutely beautiful. You know, it's, it's funny, Chase, when we were talking about, you know, you being in New Hampshire. And when I grew up there, I don't know how it was, you know, where you were growing up, uh, you know, on this. But like at the time, Central Washington was just like cows and horses and fruit trees and, you know, these just little tiny towns. I was just like, oh, my gosh, how do we get out of here? And everyone wanted to be in Seattle and, and just right. get out. And now it's sort of turned into this amazing, you know, rock climbing, mountain biking, trail running scene that, you know, now I kind of look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, how do we get back there and hang out more back in central Washington? But, you know, it was a super humble upbringing. And it's one of the things I'm probably, you know, most thankful for. I think when you grow up in a town of 2000 people, and I think I graduated in a class that was maybe 50 kids of which probably 45 of us went to school together for the full 12 years, you know, it really forms a big part of, I think who you are. Cause you go, you're just going to see the same, you know, 49 other kids at school. You're going to see the same 2000 people around town. All of those 2000 people are going to be in the, you know, the Friday night lights at the football game. Right. Um, you know, so it was, it was a place like I look back and I think, Oh my gosh, you know, how did I grow up in this small little town being so lucky with all the opportunities that I've had since then? And at the same time, I think it was one of the, probably the greatest foundations that I ever had for just kind of where my values came from. And, you know, you learn, you learn really quickly that, uh, you know, how to get along with people and you learn really quickly the importance of relationships and you learn really right. quickly what hard, what hard work looks like, you know, when the vast majority of the population's picking apples and picking cherries and farming. And, um, you know, it's not a super easy upbringing. Right. Word travels fast in that community. That, that it does. That's how we used to, we used to have this little, it's probably still there. We used to have this little pharmacy that was called Doan's Valley Pharmacy. And, you know, I used to remember as a kid, I would go there and, uh, you know, you'd, you'd walk through, especially once you got in high school and, you know, you'd walk through this little pharmacy back to where you could get an ice cream cone or a hot dog or whatever. You know, and uh, and you just know everybody walking through there and be like, oh, great game. You know, oh, how are your mom and dad doing? How's your brother doing? Yeah. You know what I mean? That was that was the scene. Like, I think that spot is almost an incarnation for me of what it's like to grow up in a small town where just everybody knows your name and everybody knows your parents. And to your point, you know, word follows fast. You mess up, man, your parents know before you even get home of, <laughs> uh, of what had happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. And uh, did you play a lot of sports growing up? Yeah, I did. You know, I was I was lucky. Cashman was definitely a sports town. Um, you know, and, and and I think I I say this on I'm pretty sure all of my friends, 
you know, played three sports and, you know, you think about it now and you're like, Oh, you're a three sport athlete in high school. And I think back then, you know, when you're in a small town, it's like everybody plays three sports. Everybody plays on both sides of the ball when you're playing football. Um, you know, and so just had such a great opportunity to do that. Um, and, and again, I think, you know, when you're in that environment, when so much of what is going on is it's like, Hey, you're, you know, going right from working in the, you know, the apple orchards and picking and, you know, to play in sports. And, you know, that was just so much of life. Like, I mean, it was not like growing up in, in Cashmere, Washington at the time, it's probably changed, you know, but was this academic haven of, you know, kids are getting out of here. It's like, Hey, this is where you're going to grow up. This is where you're going to be. This is, you know, part of this is, this is your soul. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I was lucky to, you know, lucky to play a lot of sports. Um, you know, it was also like, you just grew up in a really outdoorsy athletic family. Um, you know, I, I have just such great memories as a kid of my mom and dad running these long distance relays with other families. And I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world when I was a kid, we'd be camping, you know, alongside the road and, you know, our parents would go running by and then you'd go hop in the van and, you know, go hang out somewhere else and running that, you know, a mile or two with them as they're doing these 15, 20 mile legs throughout the night. Um, you know, it really, it really wears off, off on you, I think on, you know, what's important and, uh, get to be in that environment. It's just super cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And so did you have a favorite sport? You know, growing up, I mean, I, I liked them all. Um, I think what I found over time is, you know, I was okay at all of them. And when I say that, again, you got to put this in perspective, Chase, small town, central Washington, you know, like being a, you know, an all league athlete, everybody's an all league athlete. There just aren't that many players. You know what I mean? And, and, and so, uh, you know, you can put these accolades of, you know, all leagues and all States and stuff sure. like that. But I think more than anything, I mean, what I loved is I just loved being out and competing, you know? And so that could be, I actually look at probably the most fun things and it was actually training. You know, it was being in the summer with our friends out running in the heat and running hills and, you know, getting into the gym and running bleachers, um, you know, and doing those things. And then, you know, going out and playing two on two basketball down at the, you know, we kind of had kind of these, you know, pretty not uh, pretty crappy court, you know, down uh, downtown. I mean, we would just play two on two basketball from sun up to sundown all summer long. And I think those are the things that, I remember the most, you know, it's not even the organized sports or any of those pieces. It's just, uh, you know, working hard with a bunch of, a bunch of friends where you're just going, Hey, how do we just get better? And, and, and I think when you, you know, again, going back to kind of that small town environment, you know, just your dream is, Oh my gosh, how do we get to the state tournament? You know, how do we do this? And we'd grown up, you know, for us going over to the big town of Tacoma, you know, for the state basketball tournament years and years, and you just watch it, you watch it, you watch it, just going, oh my gosh, how do we get there? And, uh, you know, and, and so that was so much of, of what it was for me growing up or just those times with a bunch of other guys working super hard. And, it, and I think we probably just didn't know any better, you know, of, of just what else was in the world. We were just growing up in this small little bubble of, you know, farming town, hard work, going to school. Um, and that was kind of our lives. Yeah. It just kind of was what it was back then. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, you know, it's funny because I mean, you look back on some of the, you know, you'll see like a Norman Rockwell painting and they seem just so iconic and different. And in some ways I look back and I go, gosh, 
so much of my upbringing could have been that Norman Rockwell painting and very different than what he painted, but from just that typical American, you know, feel of, of what it was, what it was like to grow up in a, you know, a small town and in dusty central Washington. Yeah. But it sounds like too, uh, like you're, you're outside a lot, very active. So it was, it was still, you're still living that Pacific Northwest lifestyle. I guess that's probably more broadly, I guess, recognized across the country nowadays. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was just an amazing spot, you know, and we grew up out in the country, you know, one lane road up to our house and nobody within probably a couple miles of us. And, you know, I remember just, you know, in the mornings I'd get up and just go run up the mountain that was behind us. You know, and you think back now and you're like, who in the world just goes and runs up a mountain? You know what I mean? Like who, <laughs> who just has that opportunity to go do it? Yeah. But it was, you know, it was part of growing up in the country and, you know, those things that were just easy. And I, you know, similarly, you know, you, you remember the kids that, you know, were like the rodeo kids and stuff, you know, they were just like, oh my gosh, they'd come into school, you know, the next day, having got thrown off of horses and wrestling cows. And you're just like, <laughs> now those kids are the tough kids. Yeah, like we're yeah. just playing around, running around, you know, football field or basketball court. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Are you still running up mountains in Park City? Oh yeah. Park, Park city chase is, uh, is definitely, if you like the outdoors, it is a bit of heaven for sure. Yeah. That's what I've heard. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a really unique place in that one, the mountains are incredible, but two, you just have this incredible mix of people that come here because of the mountains and because of the outdoors and because of Sundance and, you know, so many of the winter Olympic sports are here. And so, you know, it's a super transient community, which makes it everyone who comes here comes here for a reason, you know? Yeah. And so it's not sort of like, Oh, I just grew up here and I just kept doing what I was doing. It was a, I want to get to park city because I love the trails because I love to ski because I love to be out in the outdoors. And so it creates a, you know, I think a community that is really unique um, compared to a lot of different places. So we've just, I mean, we just absolutely loved it. I guess it was, what's it been four years um, you know, since, since we sold Skull Candy. And at that time as a family, we kind of got to do this pullback and go, where do we want to be? What are we going to do? What's important to us and to our kids? And what does that look like? You know, and, and we just, it was, it was such a, almost a fortunate thing to be able to pull back and go, gosh, do we want to move and be somewhere else? And what would that feel like? And, you know, we just went, gosh, this is such a special place in, in Park City and probably yeah. have to drag us out of here. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like my kind of place. <laughs> yeah, it's it is it is good living. If you like the combination, you know, of just I mean it's so funny like just I remember when we first got here and uh by no means am I like a great trail runner or anything, but I like it. It's super fun. Yeah. And you know, I was out trail running and someone just went blowing by me and I was like, "Oh my gosh. Like what in the world?" You know, and and I got up to the top of of the mountain and you know, this guy was just hanging out up there. And uh, I started talking to him, you know, and very quickly, you know, you kind of get to, he was a silver medalist in, I can't remember if it was Vancouver or wherever, Nordic skier, you know, and you kind of just have that happen all the time. Just these amazing athletes that are in the community that is very humbling, uh, you know, all the time, just the incredible people that are here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that sense too, I'm sure you kind of become, like the saying goes, a product of your environment too. So it pushes you to be better too. I couldn't agree more. 
I mean, I, I think about, we have a, a workout group in the morning and, you know, we actually just got, got back here an hour ago, you know, kind of five thirty six in the morning, sun coming up. And, uh, you know, I look at that group and it's just so much has helped me be a better person. And, it, and it's made up of, you know, just an incredibly diverse group of people. And, you know, some people are CEOs, some people are, you know, ex Navy SEALs, some people are ex CAG and Delta, you know, some are college kids, some are Olympians. And I think you hit it, you know, you just go, man, who you surround yourself with is so much. You can go back to that saying of, you know, whatever it is, you're a combination of the five people you spend the most time with. And right. I think it's easy, easy to say that in passing, but I look at that for me and I go, I can almost just go back through my life and go, who is I spending time with? Who is inspiring me? Who is making me better? Who is I inspiring? And I can filter that back almost to the best times of my life and, you know, the times that were the toughest in my life. Um, and it's one I, I think about a lot now, you know, and, and probably as I've, you know, gotten a little bit older, um, you know, have very much gone, hey, there's only so much time in the day and I'm going to spend it with people who I feel like I can make better and people who I know are making me better. And I just don't have time, you know, for the rest of the folks and. You know, essentially, I think when I was younger, I was a little bit more of just like, oh, you know, just kind of hang out with everybody and that's cool. Yeah. And now I am much more, you know, hey, is this a community of people that I want to be with and we can together be the best we can possibly be? Um, and it's, it's really been an amazing change for me in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very wise. And so bringing it back here, where did you end up going to college? Yeah. So... As, uh, you know, as we talked about growing up in a small town, college was not what was at the, the top of my list by any means. I mean, I really went to college because I wanted to play sports. I'm not sure I would have even gone to college. You know, it's so funny because we have two, um, two kids now, one who's 12 and one who's 10. And, you know, my 12 year old can tell you, you know, she's a big lacrosse player, especially she can tell you the top 20 lacrosse teams in D1 and you know, what are the best schools in the country? And, you know, she's just so dialed. And I compare that to how I was. I think I knew, you know, teams via their football and basketball teams. And, uh, you know, and, and that was about it. I didn't really even know what I was going to do. Um, you know, so when I, when I went to college, it was very much, hey, how do I, you know, how do I play sports? What does that look like? Um, and I went to a small school in Washington called Pacific Lutheran. You know, and I think the biggest reason I went there is, you know, the year before, I guess it was the year before, you know, right around there, they had won national championships. I was just like, oh, that's so cool. You know, I want to be part of that. Yeah. Um, that's going to be awesome. I don't, I, I'm actually sure, as I say this, I never set foot on campus beforehand. I didn't know anything, you know, about it. And I got there and uh, it was just a shock to me you know, of getting to a place um, and not knowing how to study, you know, and, and, and not sort of knowing what's going on. And, uh, you know, I think my first year there, maybe, I may be overstating this, but I maybe had, you know, a 2.5 grade point average. And it was just the biggest wake up call of, oh my gosh, like, what are you doing here? Um, you know, and, and it was really fun playing football, but I, like I say, it was, it was more a wake up call than anything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, af after my first year, I just went, I just don't even want to go back. Like I not ready for college. I don't know what I want to be doing. And, uh, I, I remember, you know, uh, calling our football coach 
going the, you know, I, I guess it would be the um, summer before going back in and just going, yeah, I don't think, I don't think I'm going to come back. And uh, it's really like, you know, what are you talking about? You're not going to come back to school. Where are you going? Are you transferring somewhere? And Mr. was like, yeah, I just don't think college is for me. And, uh, and so I actually dropped out. And, uh, you know, my, my mom was wise enough that uh, when I said, mom, I just don't want to go back to school. You know, I, I just don't think college is for me. You know, I just, I'm not loving it. Maybe I don't think I'm that smart. You know, I think there are other things. And she was like, well, okay, hey, 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 you know, let's don't just quit. What's, what's something we could go do? And, you know, I said, well, I really want to travel. And she said, well, why don't you go learn a language somewhere? And I was like, oh, okay, well, that sounds cool. You know, I can go do that. And so I actually moved to Mexico for, I don't know, six months, eight months, wow. you know, some, something like that. Dropped out of school, moved to Mexico and uh, went to this little language school. And it was, it was really interesting time, Chase, because it was a time where, you know, I just didn't feel like I had any of those pressures, you know, that I had had before. And it was kind of just this time of truly, hey, find what you love. And it was also a time where it was a big switch for me, where I had always gone from, you know, you're an athlete, you're an athlete, that's what you do, that's who you are, that's your identity. It's just like, oh my gosh, I don't have that anymore. Like, what am I, you know, here? And, and, and one of the things I found, you know, as strange as it is, this little language school is, I really liked learning Spanish. Like, I just thought, oh my gosh, this is cool. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. And it allowed me to, you know, go out and talk to people and communicate, and know people in the you know, the city, you know, I was pretty good at it. Um, and so it was a big, it was a big change for me. Um, you know, where I went, okay, you know what, I do like to learn, you know, I do like to do these new things. And so that's actually what got me um, to go back to school afterwards. And so, you know, when I went, when I went back, um, this program that I've been through is through another small school in Washington called Western Washington. And, uh, you know, so I enrolled at, Western, you know, went back to play football, thought I'm going to hop right back into this. And probably the best thing, you know, probably second to, you know, going to Mexico and dropping out of college was uh, I got hurt. And so I couldn't, you know, go back and play football. And so again, it, it really reestablished for me that world's kind of gone. You know, how are you going to reshape who you want to be and what is your, what does your future look like? And, you know, I went from, like I say, I mean, probably my first year in college, I was like a 2.5 GPA to, I think from then on, once I sort of figured that out and just went, you know what, you're going to have to learn how to study. You're going to have to learn what this new game is, you know, and I think I got straight A's from there on out, um, you know, for the next three years. But like I say, I mean, it was really a radical, a radical change for me. And I think so many people, you know, when your identity or you're, you know, you're just in different places in your identity changes. And that could be from being an athlete to being something else, to being a business person, to, you know, being right. a CEO, and then you're not a CEO. And, you know, those transitions, I think are really interesting on, you know, how you handle them and then how you get excited about what the next thing is. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, and kind of an extreme example of that. You've probably seen the documentary it came out recently, Weight of Gold. I, I have not seen it, but I, I've seen the uh, ads for it. Yeah, yeah. It kind of it just dives deep into Olympic athletes and how when they transition out of the Olympics, they're like, like, what am I? Totally. Just, yeah. Well, I mean, I think you hit it. I mean, we see this a lot, you know, in Park City. And I, and I think the communities that you see it in, right, it's these super high achieving communities 
generally where you have some adrenaline rush of whether that's winning or, you know, wherever that comes from being the best. And then you have a tight identity around it. Um, you know, cause like the U S ski teams here and, and a couple of the other, um, Olympic teams are here, you know, the, the rates of, of suicide and the rates of depression, they're, I mean, so much higher than they should be, but you just see it and, and you see the same thing. You know, we do a lot of work, um, in the special operations community and you see the same thing, you know, people that were just, I mean, the top of their game, best in the world. And then they walk away from that and you go, okay, my identity was, I was an Olympian. I was a skier. I was a seal. You know, I was whatever that identity you have. And then you go, you know, a day later, I'm not any of those things. You know, what am I? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think it goes back, I mean, to this just very evolutionary biology piece, you know, just around, do I feel security? Do I feel belonging? You know, and, and when you go through that mass transition, um, those things really get questioned right at the base of, of Maslow's hierarchy and all the way through our evolutionary biology, you know, and I, I think they're, you know, they're scary and they're definitely, definitely places, you know, and I think back on the soft communities and, you know, in the Olympian communities and probably the college athlete communities are the same. Um, you know, we have to figure out better ways to help people transition in those. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what was the injury that you sustained while playing football? Yeah. So I actually got hurt playing rugby, um, which made it so I couldn't go back and play football, but I tore uh, my PCL, you know, but, but I, but I say it in this of, you know, had I really wanted, I think to do it and had I gone, we can do this. Tons of people come back from ACLs, PCLs, MCLs, you know, I think more for me, it was a time in my life, you know, where I was like, okay, this is a transition time, you know, and, and this is the, this is the time to do it. And this just happens to be the thing that's going to be the springboard to change. Um, you know, and, and I think that's why I look back on it again, very much of the, probably the best thing that could have happened to me, you know, of going, Hey, you're going to have to change your identity. You are, you know, your identity is not football player, athlete, your identity is something else. And at that time, that was a question mark. You know, what do, what do you want to make that? What do you want to make that be? Yeah. Um, you know, and like I say, I think those are times that are hard. And I think those are times, you know, again, you go back to so much of how well you come out of that as the people that were around you. And, you know, I was just really lucky. I had great people around me. I have, you know, have and had a family that, you know, just supported me in all the dumb things that I did and all the good things that I did. You know, and I, and I think that helped me in that transition incredibly. It certainly didn't put me in a spot where I knew what I wanted to be, you know, but I think if, you know, if, if I can go from being a, you know, a 2.5 student thinking the only thing I have is being an athlete to, okay, I can graduate as a straight A student, you know, and then sort of make that leap from I'm now a student and I'm smart and I like to learn, you know, to, to be able to go to law school and business school and those things you know, I know there are great ways for people to be able to do it, but I don't think it's easy by any means. Yeah. Yeah. And was that injury, did that like kind of lead you to taking the job as a personal trainer or were you working as a personal trainer before that happened? Yeah. I'd actually been a personal trainer all the way back in high school. Oh, wow. So, okay. you know, we had, we had a small little gym, mid Valley fitness and Cashmere, Washington, you know, where I was a trainer and I worked the front desk and, you know, kind of did everything from, you know, mop the locker rooms to train people, to check people in. 
um, you know, again, think small town here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so I had just kind of grown up in that. And like, I, I, I think one of the things I just loved about the gym and training hard and, you know, as it was just in your control, you're just like, okay, how hard am I going to go? What am I going to do? And you could see results. And then when I became a trainer, I just loved sharing that, you know, I had just found so much and, and probably so much my own personal self in the gym and on the fields. And so when I could take that to other people, it brought me great joy, you know, and, and I think it was one of those first lessons for me back to that part that goes, you know, you can find joy in doing things that you do well, but true joy comes from how do you help other people be their best selves. And that was, you know, probably one of my biggest learnings for me and a trainer of like, I just, okay. oh man, I used to hate it because I had the early shift in college and I, you know, I had to be over at the world's gym and, uh, and I had to be there. I think it was a, maybe it was 4.55 or something because my first client would come in at 5 a.m. And I mean, again, think as a college kid, having to be up at 4.30 in the morning, just going, oh, this is a wreck. You know, <laughs> how could this be any worse? And, and I remember I would just get there and in the first 15 minutes, you would just see, you know what? You're changing these people's lives. And especially the people that would come in that I, you know, I didn't think I would love this, but the people that come in and, you know, maybe they're a little overweight, you know, their spouse had got them 10 personal training sessions or something as a, you know, as a gift. They kind of wanted to be in there and you would watch them go from, you know, not really confident, not really wanting to be there, not feeling that good about themselves to, you know, let's call it 10 weeks later going, I'm a better person. I'm a better husband, wife, spouse. I'm a better father, mother, all of those. And then you could, you know what I mean? Help someone on that journey. I think yeah. it was a journey of, yes, they got, you know, stronger and better cardiovascular, et cetera. But it was really about, they just became better people. Um, and, and so for me, you know, that's why I always look back and other people ask me like, what's your favorite job? And I've been, you know, so lucky to, you know, work at the Volcoms and the Nikes and the Converses and Skull Candies of the world. And I still look back and I go, you know, probably the both most foundational job for me and one that I loved the most is I just look back to being a personal trainer and you go on a one-to-one -one basis, you could change people's lives. So that when they walked out, they were better, but they made everyone around them better as well. And so that's one, you know, that's always really stuck with me, um, you know, as a leader, as a friend, hopefully as a spouse and, and as a dad as well. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's great. And so what, what did you think you wanted to do like for a career long-term while you're in college? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think always growing up, I mean, so much, you know, if we're a product of what we see, um, you know, and, and I think that's a great thing. And it's also somewhat of a, a limiting thing. And I think we're, you know, seeing so much of it around what's going on in the US right now. And, you know, how do we think about even systemic racism and so forth? If you're only seeing, you know, this of your parents and your parents' friends, that's all right. you sort of know to aspire to. Um, you know, and so for me, you know, I, I look back at where I grew up and my greatest role models were teachers and coaches. And, um, you know, so, so when I was in college, you know, I, I, while, I, while I didn't study them, I started in pre-med biology, you know, thinking I wanted to be a physical therapist or a doctor or something like that. You know, I, I think where I, where I thought somehow, even though I wasn't on that path, I was like, oh, I'll always be a teacher, I'll always be a coach, you know, and, and I'll go back to that. Um, you know, so those were probably my, you know, my aspirations and, 
And I look at those, you know, it's interesting, Chase, now that I, you know, I think back and I've been so lucky, you know, to get to be a CEO and, you know, run companies and stuff. And I, and I still often wonder, you know, as I look back and who knows what the future holds, but going, I still think those are the most important, you know, positions in the world um, of our educators and coaches. And you go, who are people, you know, that really change the world again, one person by one person. And that's who it is. So, I mean, I just have so much respect for our educators and our coaches. And yeah, you know what? One, one day, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe uh, Park City will get a 50-year-old strength and conditioning coach to uh, come, come hang out with the football team. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then where does the, the transition uh, come for when you go into like law? Yeah. So good, good question. So I, I wish that I had you know, this fantastic epiphany or something. It's just like, oh my gosh, you know, I'd seen Atticus Finch and, you know, gone, (laughs) I have to be a lawyer. Um, That was not my story at all. I think I was more trying to go, what can I go do? You know what I mean? Like, what's just, what's the, what's the next step? And I think I didn't have a good idea. And I remember, you know, going to, at the time, you know, it was either Barnes and Noble or Borders or one of those you know, and, and probably being a junior, probably maybe a sophomore or a junior in college. And I would just go into the like grad school section, not knowing what I want to do. And I would just read book after book after book, just sitting there in Barnes and Noble trying to go, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? And I, you know, at that point, I think I had a pretty good idea that I wanted to go to grad school. Um, I had, I actually forgot about this. I, I had actually, uh, found somewhere this what they call the marine battalion commander uh you know some kind of billet and i actually applied for that and was so excited like i was training for i was like oh my gosh to go go be in the marines and uh and i actually failed the physical of all things chase (laughs) to be able to do it so like i look back again you know at sliding doors on things and i go oh my gosh you know i was ready to go and do it failed the physical literally because I, I think it was because I was on tetracycline or something like that, you know, which was at the time you couldn't be on some substance. Um, and, uh, you know, and so when that didn't happen, I was crushed. I was like, okay, so now I got to go figure, you know, figure something else. So, so then again, so I kind of remember, you know, just reading these books over and over and over again. And, and I think for me, you know, and again, back to you are what you see. My best friend's dad was the small town lawyer, you know, in Kashmir, and I interned with him when I was, um, you know, in high school. And I think I kind of went just like, oh my gosh, well, that looks cool. And then once I got into it, you know, I just went straight at it. I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, you know, at the time I'd kind of figured out how to study and stuff at that point. I was like, okay, let's, you know, let's go. And, uh, you know, and then that, so I ended up going to Northwestern and really I went to Northwestern out of, I wanted to be somewhere, one, you know, that was a great law school, but two, I wanted to be someone that was really known for having a great community and, you know, not this kind of Harvard Law School, super cutthroat. Um, and so that's actually the reason I, I chose of the place I got into to go to Northwestern was, was on that. And I, and I remember getting to Chicago, you know, having never been to Chicago and just going, oh my gosh, this place is incredible. This looks like California. Like it's on the lake. There are people playing you know, playing sand volleyball, this is going to be amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and so like a, a lot of people will ask me, you know, again, cause they'll sort of look at, gosh, you've had all these cool jobs and you know, or you're, 
one of the youngest CEOs of a public company and, and uh, you know, what was your plan? Like, how did you do it? And, you know, I, I wish that I could go back and I, you know, I, I, I wish that I had this, oh my gosh, here's the formula. It's A, B, C, D, E. And if you do that, you know, you'll get, you'll get X. And that's just not what my path was. My path was, you know, a wandering path of, of figuring different things out, um, you know, that worked and, and quite frankly, screwing a lot of things up you know, and, and having to learn from those and, you know, being in a spot where I can remember, you know, just being at the, you know, some of the lowest times in my life of, you know, oh my gosh, like I just dropped out of college. What in the world am I going to do with my life? You know, if you could have taken that person in, you know, whatever that would have been 1993, you know, and gone fast forward that 20 years, you know, you would have never thought that parallel. You know, and so, and so I think that piece, you know, it's really easy, I think, for people to beat themselves up and be like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what I want to be, you know, and, and, and the biggest piece for me is it's just like, man, try stuff. Like, it's okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? To try different things and figure it out and take a different path. Um, you know, and so like, it's really interesting. Like, again, I'll just, just use my daughters as an example. And, you know, one of them is just my oldest one, especially, you know, is just gung ho on. She's just like, I want to be you know, an Olympian in two sports and lacrosse and in track and, you know what I mean? And she's just like, she'll put out, you know, just plans of what her 10 year plan is to get there. And it just, it blows me away, you know, at, at her determination. My youngest one is very similar with ski jumping and the different things she's doing, you know, and I, and I sometimes pull back and I'm like, gosh, I want to be so supportive of, you know what I mean? Just how driven they are to this one path. And at the same time I go, gosh, you know, how do you weave that in with really being able to find yourself and what you love? Yeah, it's a careful balance you have to play between kind of doing what you want to do instead of what you think you should do and what you think is like the next logical path, what other people would, I don't know, applaud you for like the next cocktail party or something. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, and, and I think, you know, again, have just done so many different things. It's, my, my biggest takeaway on that, you know, and, and, and was talking with the graduating seniors last year in Park City, you know, and I think the same question always comes up around graduation time, you know, it's like, what are your dreams? What are you going to do? You know, and, and the biggest thing I said is I was just like, look, take some time to find what you love and don't beat yourself up when that thing that you thought you loved doesn't end up being your career, you know, or what you're doing, give yourself that ability because there are a million doors to go through and give yourself the opportunity to look behind some of those doors and go, how does that feel to me? And I, you know, and I think especially in the U S where we're so driven by this is the right path, you know what I mean? And the right path is go to this Ivy league school and then go be an investment banker or a doctor or an engineer or whatever it is. You know, and it, at least for me, I talked to so many people that, again, you would look back and go, oh my gosh, you did everything right. You know, and they're just like, oh, man, I don't know. I wish I would pick something else. And, 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 and so, you know, again, I think it's just, you have to be open to, to different experiences. And, you know, and then, and then I think the other thing is, is, you know, once you get into those experiences, you have to go, okay, I'm going to go 100%. You know, I mean, I, and, and I think back to that part of, you know, why did I like, why did I love to be in the gym? Why did I love to run bleachers? It was like, okay, once you're there, oh, we're going, you know what I mean? Like 
it's on yeah. once we're going to, once we're going to do it, but you know, don't be afraid to open some doors and check them out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to go quickly back to when you were thinking about joining the Marines, like how, yeah. how much did you think through that? <laughs> it sounded like when you're talking about it, like it was a very quick, like thing. I mean, that's not, that's a very long-term commitment. Like what was, yeah. like, what was your thought process yeah. there? Yeah. You know, both my parents were veterans. And so I grew up in a, in a military, um, home. So, you know, that was again, kind of back to that, you do what you see. And I think I heard a lot when I was growing up of, you know, how my parents met in the military and what it was like. And I think they look at those, those times as being very definitive times in their lives and very joyous times, um, you know, in their lives. So I think it was something that I had always, always thought about, you know, and it wasn't the first time, um, you know, that I did it of, uh, you know, after my first year of law school, went back and worked in the Pentagon and thought I am absolutely, you know, going to pull the trigger this time. You know, I love this. I want to, you know, at the time I was working in the Pentagon, it was, um, you know, on the army side and, uh, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, if I can, you know, get a billet, a ranger billet and be able to go to ranger school and do this, like I'm going, here we go. Um, you know, and, and, and so, you know, I think that was a big part of how I grew up and something that was important, you know, and I think still I look at, you know, so many and people and, um, you know, of our military, you know, and I go, I think that's a very proud organization. Again, it's bigger than self. It's pushing. Um, it's a deep community of brothers and sisters. And so I think I was always, you know, attracted to that piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you end, where, where do you ultimately end up working after, after law school? Yep. So after law school, went to a law firm called Latham & Watkins, and we were in Southern California. Um, and, you know, the first couple of years here at Latham, uh, you can kind of do lots of different kinds of law. And, you know, and, and I think when I first got there, you know, again, I had this idea of, you know, what a lawyer was, was being in a courtroom and, you know, almost like a prosecutor and, and uh, you know, what I had in my mind and I got there and, and I saw a little bit more, at least at a big law firm, you know, what it looks like to be a litigator. And it's, it's much more, you know, paper and discovery and so forth yeah, yeah. and very little being in a courtroom. Um, and so I sort of went the other way of what I saw on the other side was, gosh, here are all these people over here that are doing deals and putting things together and building things and building companies. And, and so I really got attracted, you know, on that side of instead of being a litigator, how do we, you know, was really interested in how do you build, how do you build things? And, it, and it's really strange and amazing thing you know when you're a young lawyer at a place like a you know like a latham and watkins um of your gosh i don't know what you're 22 23 something or maybe 23 24 you know something like that and you're in the boardroom of these fortune 500 companies and you know ceos and directors with 40 years more experience than you in business are looking to you going hey you know what should we be doing here? How should we be thinking about it? Because they look to you as an expert, you know? And, and, and so those times were just so amazing for me as a young corporate attorney, um, you know, that, that especially did have a focus on um, corporate governance and financing and, you know, things that were growing, growing businesses of just getting to listen to some of the smartest business people, um, you know, in the world over and over and over again. I just go, gosh, you know, again, tough, tough life, 
when yeah. you're a young associate at a, at a big law firm, you know, you're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And, you know, there are times I look back, it's like, oh my gosh, that was just brutal. How did we do that for, you know, six years or whatever? And I also look back at it and I go, just what an amazing foundation of learning from people who are so much smarter than I was and just being able to suck in that information. Um, you know, and, and, and so again, I, I don't know that I would, you know, tell people, oh my gosh, go to a big law firm. It's going to be the, you know, the best, best uh, thing you ever do by any means, but just such an incredible, incredible learning experience. If you, you know, if you like building businesses. Yeah. And what did you enjoy and, and not enjoy about the job? Yeah. I mean, I was really lucky in that my wife, um, we had both gone to graduate school together. And so we were in this journey together. You know, she was at a different law firm, Morrison Forrester, and I was at Latham. And so when we landed on the ground, I mean, it was, it was just on, you know what I mean? It was like, we both <laughs> knew, okay, this is, you know, this is going. Um, and, and, and so I was really lucky, you know what I mean? In that, and that we didn't have kids at the time. We could support each other. We both knew that each other's lives were, you know, going to be nuts. And so in that we were both just in that bubble together, was amazing because our lives were just a hundred percent. We're going to do this thing, you know, that's really hard and challenging and your senior deals on the front of the wall street journal. And, you know, you, you know about all these deals that are going to happen before, you know, they're announced and it feels sexy and it feels cool. Yeah. And then everyone around us was in the same, you know, the same thing. Um, you know, and, and, and it was, you know, I mean, we'd get up and work out together in the morning. Then we were, you know, called at the firm from, 8 a.m. till 9 or 10 p.m. You know, then we'd go watch a lawyer show at night. You know, then we'd go grab drinks with friends that were also, you know, living the same life. And then we'd get back up and, and go do it again. And so I think there's something really magical at that time of just like, it was your life. You know what yeah. I mean? You were just so fully, fully into it. So, I mean, that was one, again, I look back at it with a lot of fun. Second one, no doubt, is just the learning part. Um, just can't imagine the accelerated learning that you get when you're just with such smart people doing big things. Um, you know, you just learn it in an extremely rapid rate. Um, three, I think was, you know, just gained a lot of confidence, you know, again, even if I go, you know, way back to what we sort of started this conversation on, like, I don't think I was a kid that had a ton of self-esteem growing up. You know what I mean? Like, I think I did a lot of things out of like, I'm trying to find myself. I'm trying to figure out how do I, you know, how do I feel better, you know, around, around who I am? How do I satisfy this chip on my shoulder? Um, and so I think, you know, being at this place that was doing the best deals and I was, you know, learning just gave me a ton of confidence. Um, so those things were absolutely incredible. Um, and then I think the last thing I would just say is, you know, just the people and the mentors and some of the mentors from there, I still keep in touch with. And there are people that I still, you know, as, as something's frustrating or whatever, I'll go back and I'll go like, oh, okay, I remember, you know, when this person told me that, and I still go back to some of those bedrocks. So I'm just grateful um, for those. You know, that time, as we talked about, you're owned um, by the firm. You know, I mean, there were so many times early on where Alon and I would be going, oh, we're going to go on vacation for this. We're going to go do that. Um, you know, and it got blown up by a Friday afternoon call of you're flying to New York to, you know, go do this M&A deal um, to where you got to a point where you're just like, okay, we're just not going to schedule anything in our lives. Um, you know, and, and, and so those things are, you know, those things are, are really hard. And, you know, and, and there are times I remember, you know, being up, you know, like I remember this so vividly, um, you know, with another associate at Latham, Javon, 
you know, we were, uh, you know, it had probably been three days, you know, since we'd really slept. And we're writing these things in, in big law firms. They're the worst things in the world. They're called opinions, like that a law firm gives on, a, on an M&A deal. Like it's our opinion that, it, you know, everything in this deal looks good, essentially, you know, it should go forward. Yeah. But they're, you know, but they're one, the firm puts a lot of pressure on it because it's how they have liability. Um, and two, they're a little convoluted, like how you get there. So I remember being a, you know, I think it was a first or second year associate, you know, haven't slept for, you know, it's called 36 hours. I don't know. And, uh, you know, just sitting outside on, on outside of Javon's office and like just starting to feel tears in my eyes, just being like, what am I doing here? This is just terrible, you know? And, and so there are definitely times like that, you know, where you're just going and it's hard and you're having to figure out how to get through it. Um, you know, I, I, again, I look back on it in retrospect and it's, it's such a great learning because at the time you're so in the moment and then you pull yourself back, you know, again, 20 years later and you just go, oh my gosh, so small, you know what I mean? In the grand scheme of things. And so you, you learn a lot. Yeah. But yeah, those, those are, those are a couple of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's cool. And so why do you end up ultimately end up leaving that industry? Yeah. So, you know, I, is in an overall, I think you talk to a lot of big law firm associates and they go, Oh my gosh, I just wanted to get out. I was actually really lucky. Like I said, I had mentors that I loved. Alana and I were kind of in this vibe of what we were doing. Um, she had actually just become the general counsel of a company that she um, had taken public. And, uh, and so I wasn't necessarily like, Oh my gosh, I got to get out of here and do something different. Um, it was kind of the opposite of, I was working on, you know, a small client Volcom and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were, you know, starting to think about, hey, at some point we want to go public. Um, it was too small a client to, you know, put an older associate or a partner on. And so I just spent a ton of time with them. And, uh, you know, again, you think about just these turning points in your career. Um, a guy named Renee Wolcott, who is the chairman of the board and the uh, father of the founder, Richard, um, you know, he, uh, he called me one day when I was at Latham, you know, and, and he was, and I, and I love him. Another person who was just had such an amazing mentor to me, but at the time I thought he was scary as can be, you know, he was this <laughs> older guy, Harvard business school, had been the CEO of a couple of NYSE companies, really driven, you know, and, and he called, um, when I'm at Latham and I think all he said, Chase, or at least as I remember it, you know, and kind of this gruff older voice, he's probably in his you know, young seventies at the time, you know, it was just like, can you have lunch with me today at the Bay Club? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, of, of course. You know, and, and I thought, oh my gosh, have I totally screwed something up? Like I'm about to get the firm fired. What's, you know, what's happening yeah, there? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we went down there and, and, and I remember, you know, we're sitting at the Balboa Bay Club and, and he looks across, you know, at the table and he's just like, Hey, as we're growing, my son and the rest of the executive team, they are the absolute best in the world at knowing this consumer and surf, skate, snow, and they grew up in it and they love it. And they're so creative, you know, and and now we're going to this next phase of how do we think about the business and what does it look like, you know, maybe to be a public company, you know, and he said, and I want you to come join us, you know, and, and be part of our executive team. And Chase, I think that the, you know, the sweat that was on my brow from, I thought this was going to go to, I'm getting Latham fired for really screwing something up as a young associate to, you know, oh my gosh, this, you know, person who I look up to and is scary at the same time, 
you know, is now offering me a job to come over, um, you know, and, and be at Volcom. It was just such a, such a switch, you know? So, yeah. so I remember, uh, you know, I remember him saying, what do you think? You know, I was kind of like, oh, Renee, you know, I'm so honored and, you know, but like, I kind of like what I'm doing. And he was like, what do you mean you like what you're doing? Like, you need to come be with a business. And, uh, you know, and, and we just started talking. It was like, well, what would you want to do? And I said, Renee, you know, I, I, I get to work with all these amazing clients on the legal side. You know, if I'm going to come over and do something different, I really would love it to be a business role and more into the business. You know, and he was just like, fine, tell me what you want it to be and we'll make it so. And so I literally, Chase, as funny as this is, you know, he was like, come back to me within 48 hours of what you want your job to be, what you want your job title to be, and let's get it done. And I remember calling a couple of my friends and be like, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to answer this. So I came back with, I think, what's probably the longest title in corporate history, you know, and it, and it was something <laughs> like, I can't even remember the exact, you know, something like, you know, whatever, SVP, EVP, general counsel and head of strategic planning and something you know, cause I was just like, I just want to cram all these things together. And, uh, you know, so I ended up, so I ended up going over to Volcom. He was like, yeah, let's do it. And another one of those where you just go, oh my gosh, talk about just being on the learning fast track of going from, you know, learning kind of all this corporate side stuff to then being in a business that was so built on passion and creativity and reimagining what right. was possible in a space. Um, you know, and, and just feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm just treading water here, you know, to even keep up with the, the rest of the executive team. And so I think, you know, for me, kind of how I went, okay, how I'm going to add value here is all these guys know way more than I do about surf, skate, snow, about apparel, about branding, about all these things. I'm just going to be the person who at first is going to be a sponge and listen. And then I will outwork everybody to make sure that I add value, you know? And, and so like we'd sit in these executive committee meetings and you know, I, I remember Renee, the chairman, you know, he'd be like, hey, what are we doing in e-commerce? And you got to think back to, you know, this is, I don't know, 2004 or something like that. Um, you know, like, what are we doing in e-commerce? And this was like, there was no e-commerce at the time. Like, this was just starting. I think, you know, he'd probably read it, you know, on, on a Wall Street Journal article on this new thing called e-commerce. And, uh, you know, I would, everyone would sort of be like, I don't know anything about e-commerce. And I just raised my hand and I'd be like, I'll figure it out. You know, I don't know anything about it, but I'll, I'll go figure it out. And, you know, and so like e-commerce and international and all these things would just pop up, you know, I'd just be like, yep, I'll go figure it out. You know, let me, let me go do it. And so again, I was just so lucky to have great people around me. One that were willing to teach that were willing to be patient with me or willing to let me, you know, go figure these things out for lack of a, you know, for lack of a better word. And so I, yeah. you know, again, I was just really lucky to go from, you know, having this legal background to then being with this best in the world, branding, creative, um, you know, how do you create this emotional connection um, with a consumer that I got to learn from for, gosh, I don't know, another six or seven years, something like that, um, you know, until we then, uh, you know, we ended up taking it public and then, you know, what, five, six, seven years later, you know, um, sold it to, uh, sold it to PPR that own like Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent and Puma and um, all those brands. So, I mean, it was just a, just an amazing ride, uh, you know, with that team of learning for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's so cool. And what was the, and what was like the, the contrast that must have been between and what like the work culture between Volcom and Lath Lathman Watkins? 
Oh, it was, it was slightly different. <laughs> I mean, Volcom was very much, uh, you know, interesting in that, you know, I think you would take the typical, like, what would Volcom look like, right? With a, you know, a, a slogan that's youth against establishment. And, you know, the image that's on everything is a guy on a skateboard flipping someone off. And, you know, and, and that was very much the image and very much what Wooly had built. And I think, you know, he was one of the best brand builders in the world you know, pulling this together. And I remember, you know, we'd always talk about what unites, you know, kids around the world. It's like drug, sex and rock and roll, you know, and sprinkle in a little sports, you know? And so that was the, you know, that was the feel of how, you know, how to build this brand. And at the same time, Renee, the chairman was a business guy, you know? And, and when Volcom was even started, you know, I think it was, he loaned Richard $5,000 and was like, Richard, you'll pay that all back. Like, this is not a, I'm just giving you 5,000 bucks. This is, you'll pay it back. And so it was this interesting, you know, dichotomy of almost like the first floor of the building was like everything you would think of with Volcom. You know, it was just on and the music was on and it was kind of crazy and going. And then you'd go up the stairs, which was, you know, kind of the business area, a little more of the executive area. Yeah. You know, and it was, you could have just as easily been, you know, at any Fortune 500 company of like, people were, people were doing what they were doing. You know I mean? Like our CFO, Doug was an amazing CFO and Richard was a serious, great CEO. And, you know, Jason was a brilliant operator and Troy was a great brand, you know, guy. And uh, so it was this interesting dichotomy, but I mean, it's, it's always kind of left me with this piece, especially around brands. I think it's part of why, you know, I now just, you know, I've, I've always continued to love brands as you go, you know, there's something that just has to be so deep in that brand you know, and it was that everyone was surfing at lunch. Everyone was skateboarding at lunch. Everybody was working out at lunch. Like, I mean, that was the company. Yeah. But at the same time, like it wasn't a joke when it came to, this is a business, you know, we're not, we're not playing around. This is, this is a legit deal. People's lives, you know, and uh, you know, families get paid by doing this. Um, and so I always kind of come back to that. It's like, how do you combine those two two things. And one, I almost feel like is kind of that magic of creativity and building a brand and everything coming together, you know, where people just go, Oh my gosh, I want to be part of that, you know, and then being able to at the same time have this really tight, like, yeah, we're going to do that, but we're going to, we're going to run this really well. Um, you know, and, and, and again, I mean, I, I look back at Richard and how he was able to do that with the executive team was just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you have a, do you take on a similar sort of role when you move on to Nike? Yeah. So actually when I went to Nike, it was the first time, you know, I had no legal role at all, purely went, um, you know, as the, as the head of strategy and, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting because, you know, that job came about, um, of, we were going to take some time off. We already had an apartment in China, you know, we were, we were going to go play and I kind of <laughs> thought China was the next big thing. And uh, a guy named Roger Wyatt, um, who had been the CEO at Hurley, becomes the president of the affiliates at Nike. Um, you know, and so who's come from this action sports background, but also a very traditional Nike background. You know, and he essentially goes, hey, we've got this big project of how do we rethink what we want to be doing with our affiliate brands, you know, and what does that look like? You know, so the Converse's, Hurley's, Umbro's, you know, Brand Jordan sort of in there a little bit. Uh, Cole Haan, you know, et cetera. And, and I thought, ah, oh, this is super cool, but you know, I'm not sure we're going to go take a little time off time to be with the fam, recharge a little bit. 
And then I went up to Nike's campus for the first time. Chase, have you been up to Nike's campus? No, I haven't. It, as an athlete, it's like Candyland, you know? And so I remember getting up there, you know, and you come in and you go down, you know, this drive and it's just all the flags, like you're coming into the Olympics. And then, you know, just pictures of athletes up on these big pedestals. And you come in and, you know, right in front of you is the Prefontaine Center, you know, or Prefontaine building that has, you know, kind of the history of Nike in it. And then you go off to, you know, one side and as, as I'm going through here, and it's just people playing soccer on this pitch, you know, and I'm asking the person who's taking me around, like, you know, what are those people doing? They're like, oh, you know what? Bill's big thing, Phil Knight's big thing was, we want this to be the most creative company ever. And he thought that people were the most creative in college. And so he built this campus around the college theme. And so this is just intramural soccer. So it's just like, okay, people are just out playing intramural soccer. You know, then you keep going around and you get to a gym. He's like, oh yeah, well, what do you see, you know, at a, at a campus? Fields, gyms, restaurants, bars, like that's how people collide in unusual ways. And so that's kind of how Nike's campus is built out. So I'm just going to all these places going, oh my gosh, this is insane. This is so cool. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so I remember calling my wife, you know, and again, you got to take like, we have an apartment in Shanghai, ready to go. We're ready to roll. And uh, I called her and I was just like, honey, this is pretty incredible. I, I think we need to put our sabbatical on hold here. You know, and, and as always, just having the best partner in the world. You know, she's like, awesome. If you want to do it, let's go. Um, you know, so that's, so that's yeah. how I, that's how I ended up getting up there. And like I said, you know, it's kind of a role, um, you know, on our affiliates executive team of just like, how do we reimagine these businesses and how they fit within Nike and, um, you know, what that looks like and feels like, and how do we leverage and amplify and shift, you know, off of some of those. So a great role though, to come into Nike because it wasn't, you know, with just the $20 billion swoosh, it was with some of our, you know, billion, $2 billion brands um, that I was a little more familiar with, you know, coming out of coming out of Volcom, um, you know, that I could appreciate a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And how, how old were your kids at the time? They were, oh, Chase, it was, it was so fun because Sierra, gosh, Sierra, Sierra was probably two or three, you know, and or probably now maybe four. And Kinsey, I think was two. And you know, one of those things that just made Nike so magical. I mean, they have daycare on site, you know, and, okay. and so you could see your kids during the day and That's it's, great. A, it's, it's a really magical place. And so I think it went back to that spot, you know, almost a little bit similar to how you talked about, you know, Latham early on when it was Alana and I, and you know, you're just in your zone and Nike is the same. It's like, you're a Nike family, you know, and your kids are at the Nike, Nike tots you know, and you're working at Nike and you're playing on your mural team. And at night you're hanging out with Nike people. And, um, you know, it's, uh, in some ways it's probably too insular. Um, but in other ways, you know, you go back to that just deep communities of people wanting to do really cool things. Um, and again, I mean, just a spot where I just go, Oh my gosh, learn so much on, I don't think there are smarter people, especially around brand and creativity anywhere in the world. And to just get to be with them and soak it up um, was just in, just incredible. Yeah. And so is this where you started to become like deeply involved professionally in human performance? 
Yeah. So, so, I mean, I had always, you know, I think as an athlete and then as a personal trainer, um, you know, something that I was already deeply rooted in. Um, and then I got a job to be the GM for what we call Nike plus. So what was essentially, um, at the time, and it's kind of shifted over the years, but the idea was how do we take the best athletes in the world, the LeBrons, the KDs, the Kobe's, and make them better, especially around innovation and technology. Like what could that look like to take them from the best in the world to completely reimagining what the best even looks like. And so that's what our group did is sort of almost you took the tip of the spear mission. But then, you know, if you're going down the spear, going down the pyramid, you know, the rest was how do we take those learnings and frameworks to inspire the other 7 billion people on the planet right. to go be better. And so that's where things like, you know, fuel band and, you know, things like Nike plus running and all of the apps of Nike training club, um, Nike fuel, um, you know, a training game we did with Microsoft, you know, all of those came out of those ideas of, okay, if we can make these best athletes in the world, even better, like I, if we can make a LeBron 1% better, imagine what we can do with everybody else in the world. And then let's use the inspiration from those best athletes. And so, you know, it was something that really excited me both on the human performance side, but also back to that part of, I loved working with the elite, but I also really loved going back to those personal trainer days going, how do you take that and take, you know, kind of the everyday person or even the high school athlete and go, you know what, we're going to help you accomplish your dreams. You know, we're going to help you, whether it's get that college scholarship or if it's, you know, down the pyramid a little, we're going to make you just get off the couch, you know, and be a better person. So you end up again, being that better spouse, better father, better mother. Um, you know, that really fired me up just on that idea. And so like, even as we, you know, whether it was at Nike or, you know, now what we're doing at Liminal, that was a big part of, you know, where I kind of went, okay, I see how this works for me. And I really love both this elite piece because it really helps me learn and it really helps me grow, you know, and, it's cool to see the reimagination of what these people and teams can do. But where I find my greatest passion is really around what we can take from them to be able to have a much greater impact um, on performance. Yeah. Yeah. There's been like this really cool like trend and, and theme over the past, I don't know, maybe like decade or so where people are starting to take what was usually only accessible to like the elite athletes in terms of improving their overall performance to now, like just the overall population, like companies like Whoop and uh, totally. yeah, Garmin. It's really awesome. It's super cool. You know, and, and I think part of like one of my partners is a guy named Dr. Andy Walsh, who started Red Bull's high performance division, you know, and, and, and his thing that I love when he comes back to it. And, and I love the word he uses because he always talks about is demystifying elite performance. And exactly, it's exactly what you said. It's this, you know, we historically have taken these elite performers, whether they're you know, athletes or esport athletes or special forces or whatever it is, you know, but almost taking them and put them up on these pedestals and just gone, oh my gosh, you know, whatever they're doing, they got the right stuff, you know? And then, you know, then there's this sort of big barrier and then everybody else is doing their thing, you know, and you really quickly learn, yeah, they do have the right stuff. That's absolutely true. But most of it is learnable. Most of it is trainable, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're not going to be the best basketball player in the world. You know, if you have two, probably five, nine, you know, a five, nine dad and a, you know, five, four mom, 
you to be the best of the world, you sort of have to pick your parents on some of the genetic pieces. But once you get past, you know, that you go, you know, there's a lot of six foot seven, you know, power forwards that look very similar uh, to each other. And why are some of them the best in the world and are reimagining what's possible, i.e. LeBron? And why did some of them never make it on their college team? You know, and, and I think that's what's so interesting when you start to go to your point on, you know, demystifying um, talent. And I think the stuff that, you know, just using Whoop as an example, um, Kristen Holmes, who's their head of innovation. is. Oh, yeah, is sure. I had her on the, I interviewed her for the podcast like a few weeks ago. Ah, I love Kristen. She's yeah. one of my favorite people just by energy. And I love her background as a coach. You know, but I, I love how they're looking at what they're doing. And I think they're just getting started on that, you know, because so much of it is around data and how do I get enough data so that I can start, you know, being able to do something that's not just measuring, but I can, you know, measure and then I can have an intervention and then I can have improvement and then I can close the loop and do it over again. So, I mean, I think they're just getting, just getting started on that. Um, you know, and, and then I think the second one that's really interesting is because you bring up, you know, you bring up whoop and you go, you know, that's where the physiology pieces are coming together. And, you know, you can even put autonomic nervous system and some central nervous system by the data they're being able to get, you know, and, and, and I think what we're seeing is that's absolutely important. And it's such a great baseline, you know, and then I think the future is, you know, some of the part that goes, how do we start to measure what's going on between the ears, you know, and, <laughs> and again, back to that, you can look at a lot of people with the same physiology you know, they would do the exact same things and their whoop readings would look the same, but one of them's best in the world and one of them's not making their college team. Like what's different about them, you know, and, and is that, you know, resilience, grit, et cetera, or is that something, you know, it's very measurable on, no, that's an autonomic nervous system around upregulation, downregulation, um, a parasympathetic, sympathetic that allows them, you know, to either stoke the fire or to bring it down and they're able to go back and forth between that is a cognitive load of being able to see just more of what's going on on a court or on a field and able to make that decision faster. Um, you know, I think that's kind of the next big frontier, whether you look at sports, you know, or I think you look at military government or right. even I, you know, I'd argue the same thing, even as you get into, you know, what we call the, you know, the corporate athlete of being able to go, why is it some people when they get in front of a crowd or in front of a computer or whatever, they come up with amazingness, you know, and the other person just doesn't. Um, but they could look at the exact same by schooling, by IQ, by, you know, pick your via score. Um, but something's very different about one than the other. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So, so then when did you get the opportunity to become CEO of, uh, of Skull Candy? Yeah. I mean, a great question, Chase. Uh, I never thought I would leave Nike. I mean, I, I absolutely loved it. And, and even I remember, you know, telling, telling Trevor Edwards, who at the time was the, the head of the Nike brand, you know, like, hey, don't even take me off of your talent rosters because I'm going to be back here and, you know, in three years and just had that deep belief that I was coming back. But at the same time, you know, it was there's only one CEO at Nike and it wasn't going to be me. Um, and so it was a unique, you know, a unique learning experience. But it was one I, you know, didn't plan at all. I thought I'm going to be at Nike for, you know, 30 years and retire there. Um, and, and even when it came up, you know, I, I was, I was just really fortunate of, um, the chairman of the board at the time was a guy named Doug Collier, who was one of the early founders at Volcom, you know, so we knew each other, you know, really well, had worked together for a number of years through good and bad. Um, and what they really wanted, you know, at the time they had just gone public, 
Um, you know, things weren't quite going as, uh, you know, as they had expected. And uh, they wanted someone who had, you know, an action sports background, but could, you know, kind of just up the brand, up the technology, some of those things around innovation, you know, and so that I had been at Volcom and, you know, then run kind of innovation and some of the tech pieces at Nike, um, you know, I think were, were really attractive. But I said no, probably five times, you know, and Doug, you know, was, hey, we, you know, are you interested? And I was like, no, 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 but let me, you know, let me tell you five people who would be awesome. Um, you know, and, and finally he kind of came to me and said, you know, what would get you excited about this job? Like, why, why are you saying no? You know, this is an opportunity to be the CEO of a public company. And I was like, man, I just love what I'm, you know, what I'm doing, you know, to get me excited, really to go do this other thing. It would have to be something around how are we going to do things differently, you know, than public companies had done them. And Doug knew that I just had a, you know, really deep passion around culture and performance and, you know, how do you set up environments that, that put people in teams to be their very best? And so what we started talking about, and I, I, I should ask him as we go back, I think he suckered me in knowing that I would, you know, go down this rabbit hole. You know, but he was like, well, you know, you used to love, you know, kind of that stuff we did at Volcom. Like, this is your chance to really prove it out. Um, and I was like, okay, you know, let's talk about that. And, you know, and so what we kind of agreed that was interesting is one of our just biggest KPIs you know, was going to be around this idea of, you know what, it's going to take a while to turn this company around, but we're going to do it all around culture. And that's going to be our beacon on the hill is can we be the place that the best in the world want to work and feel like they can do their best work in order to create these just amazing experiences for our consumer. And so, you know, the, my first year at Skull Canyon, we actually didn't have a financial goal in the plan. Like literally it was a people plan of just how do we get this going in the right direction? And so that's, that's what got me excited, you know, as, as I went, okay, you know what, if we can really look at this different, let's reimagine what it can be to look like a public company and not just be chasing 90 day numbers, you know, and, and sort of just be this, you know, just company. Like, I was like, I didn't want to just be a company. It's like, I wanted to be a collective of people doing amazing things. Right. He's like, let's do it. He's like, let's on. And so I was like, okay, you know, let's, let's, uh, you know, let's go, let's go do it. And I mean, there was no doubt. It's probably the hardest thing I've, I've ever, I've ever done chase. It was, uh, you know, so much more challenging than I, than I imagined. Um, you know, we, had, we had a founder who was probably one of the most, again, creative entrepreneurial, um, you know, people in the world. And it was time for a transition. Um, you know, and I think that's a hard transition for any, you know, for any founder, especially one that had just created such a, you know, such an iconic, cool brand, um, you know? And so anyway, came in and, um, you know, just probably didn't appreciate the hurdles that, you know, we, uh, we needed to get through if we were going to, we're going to pull this off and, and have a great outcome, you know, but we really stuck by this part. It's just like, Hey, this is going to be about people. And, and I remember getting up, you know, for the, the first kind of team meeting, and I, w I wish we had a recorded to see how much of this is, you know, totally true and how much of it's in my mind um, as I've replayed it over the years, you know, but part of it was like, hey, you know, the first 60 days, just here to listen. You know, you guys have built an amazing company. I'm here to listen. At the end of 60 days, we're going to have a great plan though. And we'll come back. We're going to share it. You know, part of going through this together is we're going to be radically transparent around where we are, where we want to go and how you're part of it. And I remember coming back at the end of the 60 days, 
you know, and like I said, this is after I kind of found out we were in tougher shape than I thought. And, uh, talking about this idea, you know, of how do we make this a special company? And this is going to be a special company, but this turnaround is going to be hard. You know, there's nothing more challenging as I've learned, I think, than a, you know, than a turnaround. It's easier to build something because you don't have history as a, you know, an issue. And it's easier when something's going right to just keep it going. A turnaround, man, you're having to mesh history with a new future. But anyway, one of the things, you know, we talked about on is, you know, this is probably going to be the hardest thing that any of you will do in your career. Do you want to be part of that? You know, here's the mountain that we're going to go climb. I don't know exactly how we're going to climb it, but that's the mountain. Here's the vision. Here's the values we're going to do it under. And if we're all going to go to battle together to get up that mountain, you've got to be either in or out. And if you're out, it's fine because it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. What I can tell you the same time is you're going to get opportunities that you will never get at a traditional business because we're going to make changes and we're going to shift and we're going to run fast. And, uh, you know, when I went back and I was like, Hey, at the end of two weeks, I want to, you know, know every single person, if you're, you're in or you're out and wow. Chase, Oh my gosh, my heart was just beating. I was like, Oh my gosh, everybody's going to quit. Like what, you know, what, <laughs> what am I going to do? This is going to be a disaster. And I remember going back to my office, you know, this is before, you know, we didn't have anybody in offices a little bit later, but at the time, you know, I still had my, glass corner office. Um, and I remember this guy, Jason Bertrand, who uh, was one of our heads of digital. And, you know, I was kind of sitting in there. And again, I think I have sweat dripping off my brow and my heart's just beating. And he walks by this all glass office and he has a sticky on it. And he literally takes the sticky and he slams it up against the white door. And it says, all in, let's go. And I'll never forget, you know, that moment of just like, oh my gosh, okay. Like we're gonna we're gonna pull this off. This is gonna be um, amazing. And uh, and like I said, I mean, I think it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. More learning and man, screwed up so many things along the way. And things where I look back, you know, whatever, eight, ten years later, you know, and I go, man, I wish I would have done that differently. Um, you know, and at the same time, I look at the people that were able to pull together and do something really special you know, that was defining and that was really, really, really cool. And I think is, you know, sort of set up some of the things we're doing now. Wow. That's, that's amazing. It's a really different approach to turning around a company. Yeah. And I don't know that I'd suggest it to anybody else. It's, it's a lot, it's a lot <laughs> of sleepless nights and going, Oh man, how's this going to go? Yeah. yeah. But, I, but I think, you know, I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is I was just like, man, I, when Doug and I, you know, agreed that I was going to take this job, it was, we're not just going to go in and slash and burn this company. You know, it's like, we're going to create something special. Um, you know, and, and, and I think you can argue, gosh, could you have done it better? Absolutely. You know, could you be even special? You bet. Would I love to try it again for sure? Um, you know, on what I, what I've learned now. Um, but I think it was a different, you know, it was, it was a different approach. And I think, you know, not a fun ride for, for all, for sure. But I think one that, you know, a lot of people look at and go, gosh, I'm, I'm really glad I was part of that ride. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so when do you start to transition out of Skullcandy and begin working at Logitech and at the Liminal Collective? Yeah. So, so we, um, so we ended up selling the company and so stayed on through the, you know, the sale and some of the integration 
Um, you know, and then it was just clear that our owners had a, you know, a different vision than, than I had for the, for the company to go forward. I was very much people innovation. How do we drive this? You know, and, and they had different, different thoughts, um, you know, around that. And so, um, you know, I think a pretty easy change, both for them and, and for me, that uh, it was the right thing to do. And so it was really, you know, really lucky. Took, you know, I don't know, six months or so and uh, got to take the kids to Africa and, you know, Southeast Asia, um, you know, and just do some things to expand their, you know, their horizons and re-energize and get back together. Um, you know, and, and was lucky enough that had a lot of opportunities coming off of that, some to, you know, go back to Nike, some to run some other pretty big companies. And one that I just, I'd never even thought of, and I'd gotten to be really good friends with Bracken, who was our CEO of Logitech, you know, and, and I, and, and when he said, Hey, you know what, come, come talk about coming to Logitech. And I remember in my mind kind of rolling my eyes and be like, really? Like, I've got jobs to go back to at Nike and I can go back and, you know, I shouldn't say their names, run these other, you know, super cool companies. And I was like, <laughs> like your company's kind of lame. Like you make mice and keyboards, come, come on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and then we got to spend some time together and we go run together and he, he lives kind of right outside the Stanford campus. And we go run around campus and just share kind of our dreams. And he had this really deep dream, you know, and how he'd lived his life around human performance, you know, and he'd been, you know, one of those really early on quantified self guys that, you know, has Excel spreadsheets from 20 years ago of everything he's eaten and what his heart rate is when he woke up and, wow. you know, just, just all this stuff. It was crazy. And, uh, you know, and we really just started to think about like, what could the future of this company look like? And, you know, what is that? And he'd already, you know, started a turnaround for Logi, you know, at the time. And, and one of the things he said that just grabbed me, you know, is he was like, Toby, let me be really clear. When I became the CEO of this company, I didn't become the CEO of this company to run, you know, just a mouse and keyboard business. I became the CEO of this company because this company has amazing engineering because it has a lot of cash. And when I look out 10 years, this company will not look at all like the company it is today. And it just gives us a foundation to go build something that's truly amazing. And I was like, okay, you know, let's, let's talk about that. And so we started, you know, just going through different things. And I think things that I had never even known, you know, that, you know, Logitech was instrumental in inventing the mouse, which kind of this idea of humans times technology, uh, you know, enabling people to do things that they hadn't been able to do previously, you know, and we kind of started just talking through this narrative of, you know, how do we think of this vision for our company, you know, and, and it ended up with this idea of, you know, let's get really sharp on this idea of everything that we do is around how do we design and create experiences that extend human capabilities, you know? And so where I got really excited about that was, Hey, what if we started kind of this totally new idea that was just that everything is human times technology to be able to do things that have never been done. Um, and so that's, that's how it started. Like, I just loved that idea. I was like, Oh my gosh, that, that is a big idea, you know, on, on how we think about stuff. And so, you know, then it was, so double down on esports. you know, where you start to go person times technology, being able to do things. And it's not even the game. It's the cognitive side of, you know, these esport athletes making decisions at faster rates than we've ever seen, you know, right. in the world. So what does that look like to do that? You know, and started building these new categories. Um, but for us, what was really special 
is he gave us this platform to go, hey, in this, you know, I'll call it transition to this, this bigger reimagined vision. Um, one, let's start a portfolio of companies that can be our sports and human performance group. But two, what would it look like to really have a tip of the spear organization that was working on some of the boldest opportunities that were out there? And so that's really what we got to do. So like in some ways I go, you know, this other group that we have, Liminal, yep. is, you know, in some ways the Google X of Logitech with a focus on human performance. And so, you know, we'll spend kind of, you know, half our time within Logitech, working with the gaming teams, working with the creator teams, you know, working with the high performance teams, et cetera, on especially like what are the 1% insights we can get from the elite to really drive performance. And then the rest of the time we have, you know, and again, this is just so unique. We just have carte blanche to go work on what are the biggest problems. And so, you know, or I should say opportunities, you know, and so that puts us with everything from doing work with the, you know, Olympic committees to sports federations to NBA teams, you know, on the sports side, but also, getting to work with esports teams, getting to work with government groups, getting to work with surgeons, you know, on call that kind of the cognitive athlete space to, you know, getting to work um, in the creative space with people who are really trying to go, you know, how do we really reimagine what's possible, um, you know, on those pieces, whether that's musicians or artists or gymnasts or Cirque du Soleil or um, across those. You know, and then we kind of put this overlay of, again, back to this human times technology that enables these reimagined states. Um, and so, I mean, I, I just give, you know, Bracken and Lodgy, you know, so much credit for. I don't think there are a lot of places in the world outside of, you know, maybe a Tesla, you know, an Elon and, you know, maybe a Google that are willing to go, no, let's just bring this crazy Jedi bar you know what I mean? Group of people into the company to just go do crazy stuff that pushes the edges, you know? And, and that's, that's what we've gotten to do. You know, it's whether it's, you know, Andy who started, you know, Red Bull's high performance division, bringing him in as our first partner, you know, to Jurgen who spent 35 years as a leader in Naval Special Warfare, you know, to the um, ex-creative director at Cirque du Soleil to, you know, you kind of just go down this list of amazing people who went, I want to reimagine what's possible for first the human, then, you know, starting with that, then a team of humans. And then how does that go back to really being able to, you know, push humanity and what we call humanity 2.0. Um, but a lot of it back to that idea, you know, again, it all, it always comes back to something, you know, where I had just had this, you know, deep belief from the Nike days around, if you can work with the very best in the world, and make them better, your opportunity to take that inspiration, frameworks, learnings, and apply it to a much broader set can really create amazingness. And so, you know, we, we follow that, we follow that model and um, getting to work with these elite groups. And then we try to give back some of those learnings via media and talks and working with some groups. And then you know, some it comes back through Logitech in, in their products and different things that they're doing as well. Got it. That's fascinating to see like this. I'm not sure how, how exactly big Logitech is, but to see this really huge global organization kind of taking a moonshot approach to, to kind of growing in, into the future is really, really cool. Yeah, something, I mean, you don't, you something just, you don't see very often. 
Yeah, I mean, you just hit it. You know, it's so funny you use that word moonshot because we use that one a lot, you know, is is that spot, you know, and we even, you know, have a piece where internally to Lodgy and externally, it's like, hey, what does it take to do a moonshot? And what does that, you know, really mean when you set your sights on something that, you know, from a overall perspective is achievable, but it's not achievable today. You know, and so you've got to bring together the right group to be able to work with the resources, with the accountability, without some of the reins of a bigger organization, you know, with a very clear goal to go, this is impossible today, but if we can do this, it is possible tomorrow. And the outcome that it can have for humanity is massive. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so cool. And before I let you go here, um, just some last few questions to, to wrap up. Sure. So as the name, the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to where we started, you know, being a kid growing up in a small town and just, man, seeing people work hard and having that fire. And, you know, so for me, it's just it's that fire. And I mean, I think everything I get passionate about you know, man, it just, it just burns in me. And I think my biggest, you know, positive and negative is, uh, you know, how do you take that fire and, you know, put it in the oven and get it right to that right temperature. So man, it's burning hot and it doesn't become a forest fire on the other side. Um, you know, but that's, that's probably the biggest one for me. It's just that fire of how do we go do things that are special. And I think it's combined with that, you know, it's not about me. It's about how do we, how do we do it for other people? um around that are, are probably the two that are linked for me yeah and what words of motivation or advice around maintaining an active and healthy lifestyle would you like to leave the busy professional listening yeah i mean i think number one it's just a it's just a decision you know i would say number one and you know i think you sort of go from a decision of okay i'm gonna get up and do this to i'm gonna create a habit around it you know and whether that's I'm going to put my shoes out in the morning. I'm going to put my shirt out in the morning and I'm going to meet these people. So I know it's going to happen, you know, to the third part of that, it just becomes an identity. Um, and, I, and I think that's the biggest one for me, you know, for me, I now go part of my identity is, you know, I'm an adventurer, I'm healthy. I work out at six in the morning here I go. Um, and so I think that's, that's a big one. And, you know, the, the other one, there's a, you know, a friend of mine, a guy named Andy Stump, um, has a quote oh, yeah. that, that often, uh, that often goes, uh, you know, that goes through my mind when I think about that, like part of like, okay, Hey, am I going to get up, you know, and, 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 and go do this. And, you know, what, what is, what does that, what does that look like? And I, you know, I, I, I think about it frequently, you know, but it, but it's something along, you know, along the lines and now I'm going to, now I'm going to butcher it. You're going to you're going to have to go back and, and, uh, and redo <laughs> the quote, you know, but it's something, you know, always around, of, you know, there's only um, action and regret, you know, and, and the idea on it being of, hey, you can, you know, you can be forward and, and doing it, or you're going to look back and you're going to regret that you didn't. And so like, I think about that a lot when I'm, you know, kind of sitting there and the alarm's gone off and it's dark outside and I'm a little tired, you know, it's like, okay, action regret. Here we go. Let's go do it. <laughs> awesome. That's a great place to end here. Hobie, cool. thanks again for coming on the show. It was an honor to have you on. I really appreciate it. Uh, su super fun. Thanks, Chase. Yeah. Um, quickly here, uh, where can people yeah. go if they want to learn more about working, what you're working on with Logitech and the, the Liminal Collective? 
Yeah, they can go to liminalcollective.co um, on the web is probably the best place. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.